Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Bill Altman, and I've been on staff here, if we haven't had the chance to meet, for about seven years, working mainly with our small groups. And it's good to be with you all this morning. If you are uh, with us online or at our West Campus, it's good to be with you all as well. Um, can you believe that we are just two weeks away from our New Year or our Christmas Eve services? Hard to believe, isn't it? Um, our staff is getting super excited about that weekend, and I hope that you are as well. Let me just remind you that our service times on Sunday will be two o'clock and four o'clock at our Newburgh and West campuses. And then again on uh, Monday at Newburgh, uh, Christmas Eve at 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock p.m. as well. I um, want to encourage you here at Newburgh, um, you probably noticed there are some invite cards down at the end of each pew. If someone could grab those, grab those um, take a few and pass them down. Um, appreciate that. If you're at our West Campus, you probably noticed those were on your seats when you uh, entered in. And if you are uh, watching with us online, you can join us in celebrating and sharing the invite through social media. Now, this is something that you can use at school school, at your work, you can invite people at your gym, uh, you can even have a conversation and give one to a server at a restaurant, uh, provided that you tip well, okay? Like that's super important <laughs> with that. Um, but there are several opportunities that we have for you to partner with us in making this uh, a very special weekend, because our goal isn't just to have great things happening up here on the stage, but we really want to create an environment, a warm and friendly place, so that anyone who comes in for the first time would feel this is a place that I could call home. I could call Crossroads my home. And so what we're asking you to do, church family, is to serve one and sit one. Serving one can look like hanging out with our kiddos in the nursery or maybe um, braving the weather out in the parking lot and welcoming people or meeting and greeting in the worship center or the atrium. Uh, you can even serve hot chocolate and cookies. There's lots of ways for you to help out. Um, we still have about 200 slots open, um, both at, here at Newburgh and West, and you can let us know where you would like to serve by visiting cccgo.com slash Christmas. So we're really excited about that weekend. Now, I believe that you can probably tell a lot about a person by what is their favorite Christmas program or favorite Christmas movie. How many of you guys are big fans of Elf? Okay, there's quite a few in here. So if, if Elf is your favorite, that probably means that you're sort of a kid at heart, that, uh, that you're sort of whimsical maybe in your personality. You're the person who laughs at everyone's jokes, even if they're not funny. Um, that's your personality. If you're more like a traditionalist, a little more buttoned up, you like things that have stood the test of time, then you might go for It's a Wonderful Life or A Miracle on 34th Street or something like that. Um, if your only Christmas decoration is the tree, which goes down the morning of, of New Year's Eve, and that's only because your family won't let you put it down on the 26th, all right? If, if sarcasm is your love language, you probably like the Grinch. That might be your favorite. Or if you're my wife, who I put in a category all by herself, it is absolutely the Charlie Brown Christmas special or Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving or the Great Pumpkin. Um, they're all interchangeable. They can come out any time of the year because someone was really sweet and bought her the DVD set a few years ago. <laughs> Big mistake, all right? But the, uh, the last one that I have in mind uh, probably has the most devoted fan base. These people can have entire conversations based on nothing but lines from this movie, All right? And if this is your favorite, you already know what I'm talking about, right? Christmas Vacation. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think that probably all of these Christmas stories have some, you know, holiday truth embedded in them. But the big lesson of Christmas vacation is this. Every family has a cousin Eddie, right? <laughs> Even if you've never seen the movie, you know already what I'm talking about when I say that. Um, if you come from a large family, and I think most families have a lot of things in common, then you, you already know who the cousin Eddie is in your family. But if you do come from a large family, lots of uncles and aunts and cousins, and you can't pinpoint who that person is, you know where I'm going, right? It's probably you. So we are in a, a series right now where we are looking at some of the characters who show up in Jesus' family tree. Uh, when Matthew sat down to write his gospel, sat down to write the story of Jesus, he began by giving us the family tree, the genealogy of Jesus. He begins with Abraham and Sarah, whom we looked at last week, all the way down to Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus. And if you, if you read through that genealogy, one of the things that you'll notice right off the bat in the book of Matthew is that he departs from tradition a little bit in, by including several women in the, the, line, the list of, 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 of that genealogy. And he mentions um, some foreigners, he mentions uh, a woman who is best known for being a prostitute, another lady who the only reason she got in is because she pretended that she was a prostitute so that she could become pregnant. That's a, a whole story there. Uh, uh, we see the wife of a king, and that story did not begin with a, a storybook royal wedding. We'll look at that story next week. And then Ruth, who was a foreigner and who was an outcast in many ways. But it's almost like Matthew is going out of his way as he lists generation after generation to remind us that God can use messy, broken people. It's almost like quality control would say, no, 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 throw that one out. That one, that's a factory second. And God says, no, I can use that. I can work with that generation after generation. And so this is what happens when we look at the story of one of those four women uh, today. This is the story of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is one of only two Old Testament books that bears the name of a female, and it's the only one that has the name of a foreigner. You can find that in the Old Testament. It's about a third of the way through this. Now, uh, Matthew 1, 5 says this, it says, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. That's a little bit of a spoiler here because when you open the, to the book of Ruth, she and Boaz are not together yet. There is a whole story that gets to be played out here. But I have to tell you that the story of Ruth is not just a good love story. It's not a, a guy against all the odds gets the girl and the girl gets the guy. It's not a story where if you just live, live your life God's way, if you do the right thing, then, then everything in your life is gonna be seamless. It's gonna be one good thing to the next better thing. That's not what's going on here. I think the, the, the story of Ruth was written for people who wonder where is God when things fall apart? It's, it's written for people who wonder, does God even care in the midst of my tragedy? I think it's written for people who are questioning whether doing the right thing even matters when everything is going so wrong. Or for people who wonder, can God do something significant and meaningful out of a simple, ordinary life. And so according to the opening words of the book of Ruth, it takes place during the time of the judges. Now this was about a 400 year span of time after God's people, after many generations in Egypt and a generation of wandering between Egypt and the promised land, finally get in the promised land. And for 400 years, there's this cycle that plays over and over again. It's a very dark time. Um, God's people would begin to sin 
and things would go badly for them. And so they would cry out to God and God would send a judge, a leader to help rescue them, to deliver them. And then things would go well for a while. And then the cycle would start all over again, over and over and over again. And the book ends with these kind of hopeless words. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. It was just a, a kind of a dark messy time. And it's into that dark, messy time that our story begins this morning. We're going to look at um, the first five verses of chapter one. Here's what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So five short verses and tragedy strikes Tragedy is a big part of the story from the beginning. Now, I think there are parts of this story that we can understand. I think many of us either have experienced ourselves the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child, or perhaps we've walked with a friend who has gone through that. And so we can kind of wrap our minds around how challenging this was for these three women. But what you need to know is that this begins because of a famine. And in those days, uh, a famine was a huge, huge tragedy. Uh, if, you didn't, if you didn't grow it, you probably didn't eat. And if the weather didn't cooperate, especially several years in a row, you either had to move or, or potentially face starvation. That's not our experience. How many of us can relate to being a famine refugee, right? There's another thing that makes this challenging for us to understand and that makes this even more devastating and heartbreaking, more so than just the loss of these relationships, the loss of people that they loved and cared about, is the fact that this was a thoroughly patriarchal society. This meant that men were everything. Family wealth, the family name, the reputation, the property, all of this flowed from father to son. Men were the protection, men were the security. And as hard as it is for us to, to wrap our minds around, um, especially for me, my, my first child was a daughter. And I remember the day that she was born, um, seeing her for the first time and holding her in my arms, I could just not imagine that I could feel so much love and so much joy and looking down at this, this beautiful child that was such a gift. But if you were a first-time mother in those days, words you did not want to hear were, it's a girl. You want to know what a woman is worth? Count her sons. And say, so Naomi, who once had been very secure in this regard, with a husband and two boys, now finds herself a zero. And more than that, her daughters-in-law are zeros as well. Neither of them had a child. They had been married perhaps for 10 years, we're told, without children. They would be considered barren. And so think about that. 10 years of marriage, 120 months of hope, and 120 months of disappointment. And so that's where these three women are alone, standing in the heaps and the wreckage of a life that once held so much hope. I want you to think about how much would you have to lose to be in a place where you said, I've lost everything. It's all gone. It's all over. 
Now, last week we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah and we saw that God gave them a promise, but they had to wait many years before the, that promise was realized. And there's something that's challenging, of course, about having to wait. But I think there's even something maybe more, more tragic about having, having lived the dream, having seen the answer to the promises, having, having like experienced the life that you longed for and then watched piece by piece as it all falls apart, as it all just falls in into a heap. And so this is where they are. And I think chapter one shows us if we follow the rest of it through how easy it is for us to think that God has abandoned us, that God is far from us when things seem hopeless. When things fall apart, it's easy for us to wonder one of two things. Has God either left us or has he turned against us? And that's where Naomi is um, at this point. When she finds out that the famine is over in her home area, she decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem And so the three women start out on this journey together and they don't get too far before Naomi turns to her two daughters-in-law and says, you know what? You're better off without me. Maybe you would find rest in the home of another husband. Why don't you go back to your homes and your families because you don't want to stick with me. And so the three women cry, they weep. And the two girls say, no, well, we don't, well, we want to stay with you. We don't want to leave. And Naomi's reply shows uh, just what she thinks about her future. She says this, she says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? And then listen, she says, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And this isn't some sort of sympathy play on her part. She really and truly believes out of love for these girls that they would be better off without her. Her story is over. Close the book. It's done. Some of us know a little bit about what that feels like. This might be the first year for you um, to experience Christmas without somebody who has been important in your life. And there are some losses that are kind of like a cut or a bruise or a broken bone. We can heal from those. We can recover. But other losses feel more like an amputation. And and how do you recover from that? Or maybe your loss has been a relationship or or, or something that you've hoped in, something you've worked toward. Maybe it's something having to do with your career or your professional life. Maybe today what you're struggling with is, uh, is a sin, it's some of the darkness that's in your life and you are, you're just wondering, when am I gonna break this habit? When am I gonna get over this thing? When am I gonna stop hurting the people who are closest to me? Or maybe life has just beat you up and it's not one big thing. It's just the drip, drip, drip of hard thing after hard thing and disappointment just feels like you're normal. So however you're experiencing loss today, one in a million ways that can make us feel like the dream has died, you probably have had a little bit of a taste of what things were like for these three women. Jerry Sitzer refers to this as sailing on the sea of nothingness. In the late 90s, uh, he and his family were traveling in the evening and they were hit head on by a drunk driver. And in a moment, he lost his mother, his wife, and a daughter. And several years later, reflecting on the process of grief that that took him through, listen to what he says. He says, loss creates a barren present as if one were sailing on a vast sea of nothingness. Those who suffer loss live suspended between a past for which they long and a future for which they hope. 
He goes on to explain that we would like to go back to that safe harbor and get back the thing that was lost, that person, that relationship, that job, our health. And we would like to, to sail on to that future where things are recovered, where we get a new job, a better job, a successful surgery, a second marriage. But living in between those things is a hard, hard place to be. It's that barren present. And that's where Naomi is when she gets back to Bethlehem. Her arrival stirs up some, uh, a little bit of a, a, uh, people are talking and, and saying, look, could this be Naomi? Could she be back? And Naomi says to them, don't call me Naomi. Her name means pleasant. She said, call me Mara, which means bitter because my life is bitter and that's all you can say about it. I'm glad that she says this and I'm glad that the Bible records it because this raw honesty lets us know that when we go through these challenging times, it's okay to feel the hurt. It's okay to have the questions. It's okay to feel the emptiness. And that's exactly where Naomi is. And what's behind this is she has become to the place where she is questioning, does God even care for me? Does God love me? Does God have anything more for me? I'm nothing but an old uh, worn out grandma, an old worn out woman. There's nothing in my future. What she couldn't see, but what she will see very soon is a slight glimmer of hope that's already being written into her story. What she's gonna begin to see is that with God is in the story, when God is in the story, there is always hope. And God is always in the story. When God is in the story, death becomes the doorway to life. Pain becomes the path to healing. Outcasts are welcomed back into the family and things that have died are raised to life again and hope becomes a living, breathing thing once again. We see the first glimmers of hope when, when her daughter Ruth refused to leave her after her whole, um, you're better off without me speech. One daughter does exactly what Naomi says. She turns and, return, and, and heads back to her family but Ruth stays there. And what she says to her mother-in-law in that moment are some of the most beautiful and profound words in all of the Bible. Listen to what she says to Naomi. She says, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And this is where the story begins to turn around. When the two ladies make it back to Bethlehem, we're told just a couple of facts by the writer of this book. He just drops in. It was the beginning of the barley season. And he mentions that Naomi had a relative whose name was Boaz, who was a well-respected man in the town of Bethlehem. When my wife and I meet a couple for the first time, and maybe we have the chance to hang out, we maybe meet at a restaurant or, and are just getting to know one another, one of the questions that I like to ask first, all, first off is, tell me your story. How did you guys get together? What's your story? And uh, the reason that I ask that question is, is two things. One is I just love to hear those stories. You always learn a lot about uh, people by how they get together. 
But the second reason is I kind of think that Missy and I have a pretty good story and I'm secretly hoping that they'll ask that question of me as well. And so I want to tell you the story of how Ruth and Boaz um, get together. We're going to move through this pretty quickly. There are three laws of Israel that you need to know about that come into play in their story. These are all laws that God had given his people. There's the law of gleaning. And this was a, sort of a safety net that God put in place so that foreigners or poor people would have a means of taking care of themselves if they found themselves destitute. Um, when workers would go through the field and they were harvesting the crops, they wouldn't pick everything. They would leave some things behind and they wouldn't go back and pick up what they had missed. And, and, and then people could come along behind them and glean. They could pick up those leftovers so that they would avoid starvation and the dignity of everyone was preserved. Second law was the law that meant that uh, a man had to marry his deceased brother's wife, especially if there was no heir, if there was no male heir. And if this new couple produced a son, that son would be his brother's heir. And the third law is the kinsman redeemer or the guardian redeemer law, which meant that if a family was going through hard times, they could sell their property to a relative so that they would have some resources to take care of themselves. That relative would, would earn money off of, that, off of that property, but after a certain period of time, it would revert back to the original owner. All of these things that were, were uh, laws that God put in place so that people could care for one another. And so in chapter two, we find out that Ruth is putting into practice law number one. She says to Naomi, I'm going to go out and glean. And she just happens to go out to the field of Boaz. Now, to make a long story short, she is picking up crops and Boaz comes to check on his fields. He sees this woman out there that he doesn't recognize. And so he asks his workers, who, who, is, this, who is this person? And they tell, they tell him, this is Ruth. She's the one who's come back with your relative, Naomi. And so he calls her over, introduces himself. They're relatives, right? He invites her to sit down for a meal. And he says to her, he says, listen, here's what I want. Don't glean on anyone else's land. Only come to my land. Because he recognized in that day, the most vulnerable of people were widows, orphans, were foreigners, were women. And, and Naomi is all of these, or Ruth is all of these things. And if she went someplace else, who knows what could happen to her in her vulnerable place. And so he says, no, come, come only to my fields. And then he pulls his workers aside and he says, watch out for her. And in fact, here's what I want you to do. When you are gathering the crops, drop a little extra for her so that she'll have more to pick up. So Ruth gathers all of this. At the end of the day, she goes back to Naomi and she is carrying more than two weeks worth of wages for a common uh, field worker. And, and Naomi is blown away. She says, where did you glean? Where did you get all of this? And Ruth said, well, it, it was the field of a, a very, very nice man named Boaz. And you can kind of feel the wheels start to turn in Naomi's mind. She says, Boaz, huh, he's a relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And so the rest of the, of the harvesting season goes on. They're well taken care of, but it's coming down to the end of the season and Naomi begins to think, I need to provide for a little bit more long. We need to have a longer plan for taking care of Ruth. And so she hatches a, a little bit of a plan and, um, and hope becomes alive in her. In her. So here's, here's the plan that she says to her. She says um, in, in, uh, in chapter three, she says, wash 
put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him, that's Boaz, don't let Boaz know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Now this is a huge, huge risk for Ruth. Now, last night, we had a bunch of high school kids here um, for Santa Switch. They were out in our atrium taking pictures. It's kind of a tradition here. This is like the ultimate Santa Switch moment. This is like the ultimate girl asks the guy. So, so Ruth does what her mother-in-law says. And this is a huge, huge risk. She lies down or she watches where Boaz is going to lie down. And, and, and she uh, comes to him. And, and follows the plan to a T. Boaz's feet get cold and he wakes up and he's surprised to see this woman laying at his feet. And so he kind of jumps up surprised and he says, uh, who are you? And Ruth says, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then instead of what, doing what her mother-in-law said, instead of waiting to see what Boaz would do, Ruth begins to follow her own script. That's what hope does. Hope allows us to dream dreams. Hope allows us to take new risks. And so she puts it all on the table. She says this. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now you see, Naomi's plan was just to get a husband for Ruth. But Ruth has a much bigger plan. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. What this means figuratively is, take me under your care. Take me to be, my, be your wife. But then she says, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family, she reminds him of that second law. And she says, would you also buy the property, property um, that will not be yours, property that will one day be the son or belong to the son that might be born if the two of us get married. She is taking this huge, huge risk, especially since she has never born a child. She offers to bear a son who would be ultimately the heir of Elimelech and Naomi. And she's asking Boaz at great cost to himself to do this thing for her mother-in-law. Some of you have been in a place where you have had to risk everything. Maybe if, if, if you came from a, a family where there was a lot of struggle and strife between your parents and all you saw was that kind of ugliness and brokenness, it feels like a huge risk to step into a marriage. But when you do that, you're, you're putting it all out there. Maybe, maybe you are in a place right now where you have a child who has walked away from God in, in some way. And everything within you wants to control that situation and, and bring about the outcome that you desire. But you, you know that's not the way. And so, so you just pray that prayer. You say, God, you love this child more than I do. Do would you, would you work on their heart? Would you bring people into their life that can bring them and pull them back into a relationship with you? And it feels like you're taking the thing that you value most in the world and laying it out on the table and then walking away. It's a huge, huge risk. And so what, do, what Ruth is doing in this moment is not just asking for a husband for herself. That would be a pretty good ending to the story, right? But she has in mind a much, much better story. And Boaz understands what she is asking and he is blown away by her courage and by her audacity and by her love for her mother-in-law. And he says, this kindness is greater than what I saw at the beginning. 
He says, I will do everything that you ask. And so here's what happens in chapter four. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. And listen to this, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And if that was the end of the story, we would say, what a beautiful story. But the writer of Ruth reminds us that there is a bigger story at play here. He says this is about more than two people coming together, about newlyweds having a, having a beautiful child, about a grandmother hugging her grandson on her lap. What he mentions is this, very simply in verse 17, he says, the child Abed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And so all of a sudden we see that God is, is working on a bigger plan than just taking care of a couple of Jews in a small town in Israel, that he is preparing the way for a king, that this very property that, that Ruth asked Boaz to redeem would be the property several generations down the line where a young David would tend sheep, would write his first songs, and maybe listening to the stories that his grandfather told him of his mother who risked so much and loved so much would develop the courage to slay giants and the heart of a king that this took place on this very land and that the name of David reminds us of the hope of a Messiah who one day would come and that, that generations down the road, close to this very same property, Joseph, who had the DNA of Ruth in every cell of his body, would look down on this baby boy and remember the words of the angel who said to him, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That what looked like a small, ordinary story flows into this much bigger story that the hope, the stream of this hope of a young woman who was risking everything for people that she loved flows into the beautiful river of the plan that God has been working from the beginning of time to provide a savior for all people. This is the God who brings hope. Now, some of you are maybe in a place where, um, where you are feeling like God is inviting you into the story, that God is inviting you into his story. And maybe for years you've believed the lie that you're not good enough, you don't know enough, you don't believe enough. But what I need to tell you today is that as good as a redeemer as Boaz was for Ruth and Naomi, we have a redeemer who is so much better. Ruth came to Boaz with empty hands, not knowing how it would turn out. And Naomi said to Ruth, perhaps one day you will find rest in the arms of another husband, in the home of another husband. But our redeemer, Jesus, makes the first move toward us. He's the one who said, come to me and I will give you rest. We know how the story turns out if we just turn to him and allow him to be our redeemer. 
And so maybe you've come to that place where you've stepped up to that edge before and you've wanted to go, you've wanted to take that next step, but something within you, maybe a little bit of fear, whatever it is, has caused you to step back. Don't let today be the day where you step back one more time. Step forward because Jesus has already invited you into the relationship. He's the one who's already made the first move toward you. Maybe you're in a place today where you are going through a hard time and, and it feels like the story is over and you feel like giving up and you just wish that it would be, that it would just be, be done. The story of Ruth reminds us, don't let that day be today. Don't give up today. God is in the story. God always brings dead things back to life. Maybe you've been in a place where you have felt God inviting you into a new dream. Maybe it's stepping out in some way, stepping out to serve, stepping across the street to meet a neighbor, stepping out to start a small group in your neighborhood or, or in your workplace. Maybe God is inviting you to something to do, something new to do, and you're a little bit intimidated and a little bit frightened and a little bit scared by that. But could it be that God is already at work writing this next amazing chapter of your life? Listen, Ruth did not satisfy for a pretty good story. And God doesn't want us to satisfy, be satisfied with a pretty good story as well. Step out into that next great chapter. Take a risk. Allow God to resurrect dreams and to bring new dreams to life. Matthew tells us that Jesus would be called Emmanuel which means God with us. And when God is with us, there is always hope. There is always a new chapter. There was always something amazing just around the corner when he is in our stories. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you are always with us. Even when we can't see you sometimes, when we question whether you're here, God, you are with us and you're always at work. Father, I thank you for the reality that the best is always to come. God, I know there are some of us that find that hard to believe because of our circumstances right now. And so God, I pray that that truth would speak louder than our circumstances. God, I pray that you would show yourself as you always do, as you always do to be our faithful redeemer who's made the first move toward us and is inviting us into that next beautiful story. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.